God calls us to love him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he calls us to love our neighbors as himself. Um, in fact, you're here for a love session today. Um, because as we talk about beriberi, a nutritional deficiency in children, a real focus is how do we love children? How do we demonstrate tangibly God's love for children by taking care of people that have a nutritional deficiency that's life-threatening? At the same time, though, we're talking about how we love God with our minds. Sam Porter's a medical student. I'm Phil Fisher. I lead the Global Child Health Program at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Stan, Sam is a medical student in Rochester. Uh, and he's going to be showing us what a medical student can do, and in fact, a series of medical students, to help solve the problem of beriberi and why children are dying in Cambodia. So we're looking forward to a good time over the next 45 minutes, um, loving God, serving people, and learning a thing or two about beriberi and how we can get involved. Sam. All right. All right. Is this working? All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for coming through. Um, I just had the wonderful experience of running across the church parking lot to get here in time, so hopefully we'll learn my lesson this time and leave a little bit earlier to beat the traffic. Um, so as Dr. Fisher said, we're going to be talking about uh, beriberi, which is a, a really fascinating, very sad, but very fascinating disease that's affecting children all over Southeast Asia and actually taking a lot of lives. And uh, we just want to kind of take you through the journey that Dr. Fisher especially has been on uh, these past few years of trying to explore why it is that beriberi is affecting so many and how it's affecting so many. And this journey begins in a place called Preveng Province in Cambodia. Cambodia is a small uh, country between Vietnam and Thailand. Preveng Province is this little area down here in the southeast corner of the country just outside the capital. And the reason the journey begins there is because a very special woman named Debbie Coates, who's a family nurse practitioner, has lived there for the past 20 years with her sons and her husband. She's uh, one of the few trained medical professionals in that area. She's founded the Sveishram Health Clinic there and then also trained all the nurses that work there. And uh, a number of years ago, when she was first there, she began noticing that a lot of the infants she was seeing there were coming in with these fast heart rates, fast breathing rates. They had these huge livers, um, but even though it seemed like they had an infection, they didn't have any fever and uh, often their situations would progress very rapidly, deteriorate very rapidly, and uh, they'd get close to death. And uh, as she looked through the literature and tried to figure out what was going on, she began to suspect that what she was looking at was a disease called beriberi. And uh, she met Dr. Fisher in Thailand in a, at a medical conference, and they discussed it, and uh, they decided that they were going to start looking into this disease and try to figure out what it was. And so that led to uh, what's called a verbal autopsy study, where they walked around the villages, they talked to the different mothers who had lost a child within the first year of life, and asked them what sort of signs and symptoms they had had before they died. And a very conservative estimate showed that probably about 45%, or almost half of these infants, were dying of beriberi within their first year of life, which is just an incredible figure. Uh, just a little bit northwest of Cambodia in Thailand, were the Karen or Karen refugees, and uh, they had a record infant mortality there. Over 20% of infants were dying. And as they were studying, they thought it was maybe malaria, and as they were studying malaria, they found that a lot of these infants were dying at three months of age. There was like a peak of death at three months of age, and they investigated further and found that the majority of them were dying of beriberi. Um, and there's reports from all over Southeast Asia in the literature, if you look, um, 
and it's a disease that affects many. So what exactly is it? Well, this is a question they tried to answer uh, back in the 1800s. And the beriberi, the name, comes from uh, the Sinhalese word for I cannot, I cannot, just a repeated phrase. And the reason it's called that is because in adults, this disease often causes a paralysis. And I cannot, I cannot was the dying cry of a lot of these patients. And so that's, that's what they found in adults. And for some reason, in 1870, all of a sudden, a lot of people started getting a lot more beriberi. They started noticing it a lot more. And uh, Christian Eichmann, it was a Dutch physician in, the, in Indonesia, he started looking into it, trying to figure out what was going on. And they found that the increase in beriberi coincided with the increase in eating polished rice, which is rice that's had the husk removed from it, um, and using a machine. And in 1870, they started using a lot more machines to remove the husk of the rice. So Christian Eichmann looked into it. He gave chickens white rice, and he gave them brown rice to see what would happen. The chickens with brown rice survived. The chickens with with white rice um, died. And if he gave the chickens with white rice, who got sick, brown rice, they got better. And so his conclusion was that, well, there must be a poison in the white rice that's somehow counteracted by an antidote in the husk of the rice. Um, And he concluded that. He published it. He went on to win a Nobel Prize for it, and it turned out that he was completely wrong. So it just goes to show there's hope for us all if you can win a Nobel Prize for being wrong. But uh, Garrett Grimes was his student, and he actually got on the right track when he figured out that it's probably a dietary deficiency. And in fact, that's what it turned out to be. It was a deficiency of vitamin B1, which is found in the husk of rice, but not in the rice itself. So what's happening on a molecular level? And we'll spend very, very few seconds on this slide because I don't understand biochemistry very much at all. And you probably have tried to erase it from your mind if you've ever taken a class on biochemistry. But the Krebs cycle is the main producer of energy in a, in a molecule, in a living molecule, and, uh, or in a living cell, sorry. And thiamine is an essential cofactor for a lot of steps in that Krebs cycle. And so essentially, if you don't have thiamine, every cell in your body is going to be affected uh, in terms of its ability to produce energy. So why do infants get beriberi? I mean, you can understand uh, dietary deficiencies, eating a lot of white rice in mothers. Well, what's happening is that the mothers are thiamine deficient, and then their breast milk doesn't have enough thiamine uh, to meet the baby's needs, and so the babies also get thiamine deficient. This is a picture here that Dr. Fisher took of one of these machines in Cambodia that polishes the rice. You can see some women over there. This is when my wife and I went to Cambodia waving at the white people on the motorbike riding through. They were, they were really shocked to see us. They had no idea what we were doing, but very sweet. So the reason we know so much about beriberi in infants is because of this paper, actually. Uh, what happened in World War II is that the Japanese occupied Singapore, and they really limited the supply of vitamin B1 to the different hospitals. And so Dr. Haridas, who is a British physician then in Singapore, started having a lot of infants coming in with what he knew was beriberi, but he didn't have the vitamin B1 or thiamine to treat them. And so he literally had to watch many of these infants die in his arms. He was able to document exactly what infant beriberi looks like as it progresses. And it's an incredible paper to read. You can really see and hear the anguish in his words as he describes these 139 cases, half, over half of which died in his arms um, as he watched. So this is what he saw. He saw two to four-month-year-olds coming in. They'd had no health complaints before, absolutely nothing wrong with them. All of a sudden, two or three days before they came in, they were vomiting, they were irritable. Sounds like an infection, right? 
Well, then they would start getting respiratory distress, their heart rates would go up, their livers would be huge, um, and then a lot of times they'd have kind of a hoarse voice, rasping cry, and then as he watched, within 24, 48, 72 hours, he would watch them become blue, their, their extremities would get cold, and the baby would die. And um, Debbie was seeing a lot of these things here, uh, right up until here. She didn't see very much cyanosis, although we did when we went over. We saw one infant with cyanosis, which is when you turn blue for lack of oxygen. Um, but she didn't, she didn't see very many infants die because she was treating them with thiamine, but she saw a lot of these symptoms and signs. So how do you treat it? It sounds like a complex disease. You know, it's killing people rapidly. Surely it's a difficult cure. In fact, you just inject thiamine, uh, 50 milligrams of it, and signs and symptoms literally resolve within hours. And we actually, my wife and I, watched that happen a few times while we were there. So it's an extremely preventable disease, which makes it even more sad that so many uh, infants are dying of this in Southeast Asia, that this is even a problem. So let's go back to Prevang Province. Remember, Debbie came to Dr. Fisher asking, can you help us figure out, is this beriberi? Uh, what's going on here? And so that was kind of the first research study that Dr. Fisher got involved with was, do these infants, first of all, do they have beriberi? And secondly, why are they so young? A lot of times Debbie was seeing them come in between one and two months of age when the classic age is usually three or four months. And so they were wondering, well, is there something the moms or the babies are getting exposed to early on in life that's getting rid of their thymine faster? And so the first medical student, and this is the beauty of working with someone like Dr. Fisher, is that he gets medical students to do the studies, and so you get these awesome experiences. But the first uh, medical student was Kelsey Shelton Dodge. So she had a simple experiment here. She took 27 kids who had beriberi in Cambodia, 27 kids who were healthy from Cambodia, and then 20 healthy kids from the States. She drew blood on all of them to look at their thiamine levels, their levels of vitamin B1. And then she interviewed the moms of the Cambodian babies and asked them, what sort of things are you being exposed to? What sort of things are you eating? Um, in order to try and figure out if there was something causing this deficiency. And what she found was actually really surprising. Uh, this was not expected at all because both the healthy controls, so the healthy babies and the babies with beriberi, both had low thiamine levels, much lower than their American counterparts, and their thiamine levels were hardly different at all. There was no significant difference. So basically what we were finding is that all the babies in Praveng province were thiamine deficient, but only some of them were getting sick. So needless to say, this confused the whole picture a lot more. She also found that there was no association between any sort of thing that the moms were eating, besides white rice, obviously, um, or any exposure to things like batteries. She was looking into all of that. Um, I put up a picture of a fish and a nut because uh, people were thinking that maybe fish paste that they were eating or a beetle nut uh, is a type of nut they have over there. They were thinking maybe that's causing, accelerating the rate of thiamine depletion, uh, but she didn't find any evidence of that. Another curious thing that came out of this, and this became more important as we went farther along, is that when these babies were given thiamine, their symptoms, so like their vomiting or their irritability, would go away. But a lot of times their livers wouldn't shrink back down and their vital signs wouldn't come down as quickly as we'd expect. So that kind of added a bit of confusion to the picture too. So obviously the big question is, okay, all these infants are, don't have enough thiamine, so why are only some of them getting sick? And then also if the, if the vital signs that we're taking, you know, usually the classic symptoms of beriberi is a fast heart rate, fast breathing rate, 
But those things, if they're not correlating to the actual thymine level of the baby, how is it that we're supposed to diagnose beriberi? So these were some of the implications that came out of that study. So we moved on to another study, and this is Liz Keating, another medical student who worked with Dr. Fisher. And her mission was simple. She was going to go in, she was going to get 50 infants who had fast breathing rates, and she was going to take their blood to look at their thymine level, and then she was going to collect all the other data she could possibly get. So their, all their vital signs, all the labs that they got, the diagnosis that they got. She was working in a hospital. And look at all of that and see, is there some sort of clue to a baby's thymine level? So if a thymine level is low, does that always mean that, let's say, their heart rate will be over 150 or some sort of correlation like that in order to help diagnose true beriberi? Well, they, again, gave us negative results, um, very pertinent negative results, but still negative, so a little bit frustrating, but essentially found there was no correlation. There was no lab data or vital sign or any specific measure that you could look at in a baby and say, oh, yeah, that baby definitely has low thiamine. Um, and then another curious thing she found was that even infants who had been treated with who, or sorry, who had not been treated with thiamine uh, ended up leaving the hospital with higher thiamine levels than when they had come in. So these are babies who didn't necessarily have beriberi. They had lower thiamine levels when they came in, but they had gone up by the time they left the hospital. And that will come in uh, handy a little bit later as we talk through What's going on here? So again, the question that came out of this, how are we supposed to diagnose beriberi? If there's no sign or symptom that directly correlates to them being thiamine deficient, how are we supposed to know if a child has beriberi or not? So some of you may be thinking, well, that's easy. Obviously, if you give them, th if they're sick, they come in, you give them thiamine and they get better, then they must have had beriberi, right? Or they must have at least been thiamine deficient. Well, it might not be that simple. Um, one of the reasons is that you could have a baby who comes in, they're really sick, um, and then, but they're sick with something that's not beriberi. You give them thiamine and they get better, but you don't know that if you hadn't given them thiamine, they maybe would have gotten better anyway. So it could be that you're treating an illness that's not beriberi with thiamine and just seeing them get better that, uh, of something that would have gotten better with or without thiamine. A more interesting theory, too, is that uh, it could be that thiamine deficiency makes people more predisposed to getting an illness outside of beriberi, so it might deplete their immune system or something like that. The reason I say that is because in Brazil there was a study that showed um, out of all these infants in an intensive care unit, about a quarter of them had low thiamine levels, regardless of whether they had uh, signs and symptoms of beriberi. They could be coming in with some other infectious disease, but their, their thiamine levels were still low. And then an even more interesting study was done in Laos into malaria. They looked at people who got malaria, and they found that when they got malaria, their thiamine levels went down. And then as they got better from their malaria, their thiamine levels improved. And so uh, maybe we're looking at, the, the question is maybe we're looking at thiamine the wrong way. Maybe it's actually just an indicator of a disease. Uh, or maybe it's maybe being low in thymine predisposes you to getting sick more easily. So these are some of the questions we are looking into. So then, uh, so then me and my wife got the privilege of going over um, to Cambodia. And by this stage, we were really wondering, okay, how is it that we can have a definitive diagnosis of beriberi? So how can we know for sure that this child has beriberi? And one of the things that is pretty classic for beriberi is right-sided heart failure. So... 
That's where your, your right ventricle, the right side of your heart, uh, doesn't pump as well. And, show, and, and so what we figured was that if we took an ultrasound machine with us and looked at the hearts of these babies, we would know for sure which, one of, which ones of them had beriberi by the fact that their right, the right side of their heart was failing. So our question was, what do the hearts of Debbie's sick kids, so the sick kids she's seeing, what do they look like? And what do the hearts of the healthy kids look like who live out in the village? Um, and also, do the hearts of the sick kids change as, after they get thymine? So is there some sort of underlying beriberi that maybe doesn't correlate to their clinical symptoms, uh, but is actually un- is under there, their hearts are failing? And then we also threw in this N-type pro-BNP, which is a, a marker of heart failure, just to see if, if maybe the babies who were sick had higher indicators of heart failure in their blood levels. So... We did that, and here's the basic outline of the experiment. We took 20 kids who were sick. Uh, We looked at their hearts the first day they came in, and then the next two days after that, we took their blood the first day they came in, and then the last day they came in. So we're basically looking at their thymine level compared to their heart. And then with, with the healthy babies, we took a picture of their hearts and then also took their thymine levels. Just trying to see, is there a difference in the hearts here? So... I'll let you know that we actually don't have results yet, so <laughs> uh, I, I don't have a big answer to this yet, but uh, we're in the process of looking at all the echoes, and one thing that you should definitely know if you're going into international research is that it'll take four times as long as you think it will and cost twice as much. So, the uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely been interesting being flexible with that, but we had issues with getting our echoes read. So here's some pictures from our time in Cambodia. Uh, Had a lot of fun. We were there. Uh, There's my lovely research assistant, my wife there, taking her around on the motorbike. No helmets, of course. Uh, That was lots of fun. (laughs) But here's Debbie and John, her husband, and they were great contacts while we were over there. And I guess one thing I would really say is if you're going to do international research, be sure that you have a team, especially a local team. So you can see these guys here are nurses and doctors that we recruited to join us for this study. Um, right there, we're taking a, an echo of a little baby's heart there. And uh, really, these things don't work without a local team. There were so many translational issues and um, cultural issues. I mean, at one point, I don't actually, I don't think I told you this, Dr. Fisher, but like halfway through, yeah, hopefully this doesn't come as too big of a shock, but... Like halfway through, there's this rumor going around that we were like selling the blood that we were collecting to the Vietnamese for money. Um, and so obviously that wasn't true. But in order to convince people that it wasn't true, it really helped to have local team members who knew the language, who were part of the same culture and could really reassure these people that, no, 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 don't worry, we're not, we're not doing that at all. So that kind of leads into the importance of fitting into the local culture, and that was another issue we ran into. About three-quarters of the way through our time there, it began raining really heavily. The rainy season started, and uh, women stopped coming in. They stopped bringing in their babies, even if they were sick, um, because they had to work in the rice fields. And so that created this huge barrier of, okay, how are we supposed to get these women to come in for follow-up and to keep keep them enrolled in the study, and so we kind of changed the way that we compensated them for their time to make up for the, the fact that they were losing a day and a half of work in the rice fields. Um, another thing that can be tough when you're overseas is informed consent, so making sure that people really understand what they're getting into, the patients, the mothers, 
um, and then also really respecting their wishes, even if you don't feel like they really understand how risky or not risky the study is. I know we'd go through an hour and a half of enrolling a baby, getting their blood, looking at their hearts, and then right at the end the father would say, no, 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 I don't want to be part of this study. I don't want my baby in this study. And it would be really frustrating, especially for our Cambodian team members, and just being able to model for them, like, no, the patient always has to have the final say in whether they're going to be part of a study or not uh, was really important. And then the last thing is, um, if any of you have done any sort of research, you know that you have to write a big protocol at the beginning. You have to say exactly what you're going to do. You have to get that approved. But when you actually get there, you find that a lot of the things you thought were going to work or that you'd planned on doing don't really seem to work as well. Um, And it's really tempting to just start adjusting your protocol. So uh, we're not getting enough babies who have thiamine deficiency who've never been treated with thiamine before. And so we'd start... You know, we, we'd, one thing I mentioned to Dr. Fisher was, well, should we kind of change our enrollment criteria so we start getting more babies? And he really encouraged us not to start adjusting the protocol just because we weren't getting data. And I'm really glad we didn't because we ended up getting plenty of babies who, who fit into uh, what we were trying to do in this research study without having a lot of factors that would have confused the whole study. So that was another important lesson is stick with your protocol. So let's look a little bit. I wonder if you can dim these lights. Are you want to try, Jess, or, or Dr. <laughs> okay, yeah, there we go. All right, so here's some of the ultrasounds that we took of these babies here. And you can see this is a child who came in with symptoms of beriberi. This is a child who's healthy. Oh, Actually, I'll just use the mouse over here, and you can see. And you can see here... This is the left ventricle here, this circle, and we're cutting the heart like kind of right down the middle. And this is the right ventricle. And notice that the right ventricle is a lot smaller than the left ventricle in a healthy kid. Now come over here. This is the left ventricle, and this whole thing right here is the right ventricle. So it's massively enlarged. Also notice that here, the left ventricle is kind of in a donut shape. Over here, it's more like a D, because this septum between the two ventricles is getting squashed, because you have incredibly high pressures on the right side of the heart. So really stunning. And actually, when this baby came in and I took that echo, I wrote Dr. Fisher immediately because I thought that they had some sort of uh, congenital heart problem, like some sort of hole in their heart or something. Uh, it turned out that they were just sick with beriberi. Here's another interesting picture. So we're looking at the blood flow now, and we're looking at all four chambers of the heart. So this is left ventricle, left atrium, right atrium, right ventricle. And you can see over here, again, the right side is much bigger than the left side. And also, this blue flow of blood is going the wrong way. It shouldn't go back across this valve. This is the tricuspid valve, but it's just shooting right across that. And that indicates that you just have massive pressures on the right side here. You can notice in the healthy baby, there's none of that jet of blue going back. So now these are more interesting pictures, I would say, because this is the same baby. This is the baby when they first came in. And then this is 24 hours later after they got the thymine. So again, remember, right ventricle is huge over here. Now look over here. Can you see how small, how much smaller? Oh, the, the right ventricle over on this side is a lot smaller than it was over on that side. You can see it's almost back to normal size. It should be smaller than the left ventricle. Sorry about this. I don't know. So you notice how much smaller this right side is compared to that side. And that was just in 24 hours their heart has completely basically changed the way that it's working. Here's that same view again with that 
blood going the wrong way over there, just shooting back across the tricuspid valve right here. You can see that that jet of blue has almost completely gone away. And that was just in 24 hours. The change in pressure in the right side has, has gone down completely. So we're talking about an incredible disease process where you just give someone some vitamins and their heart completely changes its structure within 24 hours. Here's one of our, uh, I'll just wrap up with this, um, the demographic data of our beriberi cases. So, and this is just basic data about the, the babies that we saw, but one thing I'll point out is we defined mixed beriberi as beriberi that didn't resolve as quickly as we thought it would after we gave them thymine. And you can see most of the babies we saw, their vital signs didn't really drop as much as we'd expect uh, within 24 hours. So, again, kind of that confusion of what kind of disease process are we working with here. So the data is not in, obviously, but the questions continue. How do we predict uh, which of these kids, they're all thiamine deficient, which of them are going to get beriberi? That's a huge question we have. And then also, how do we solve this problem? All these women are eating polished rice or this white rice and having thiamine deficiency. How do we improve thiamine levels on a population scale? How do you convince someone that the brown rice, even though it doesn't taste as good, is better for them than the white rice? So that's uh, a much, much bigger question and something that Debbie is thinking about constantly, as are we. So let me just summarize the talk um, by going over some of the things we learned. So beriberi in infants often presents with heart failure. Remember those echoes, huge right-sided heart pressures. Um, why are they thymine deficient? It's because their mothers are not give, getting enough thymine, and so the breast milk doesn't have enough thymine. It's very common in this province, but it's not only common among babies who are sick, it's common among babies who are healthy, uh, which adds a whole new dimension to figuring out what's going on here. It's not related to anything that the mothers are eating, or besides white rice, obviously, uh, or anything that they're exposed to. And there's kind of this curious relationship between getting sick just naturally, just some sort of infectious disease, and your thymine levels. It could be that when you get sick, your thymine levels just go down, like that malaria study showed, and they get better after you get better from that disease. So the main takeaway point is that we need a lot more research into this area. Uh, again, there are thousands of babies who are dying in Southeast Asia because of this disease. It's incredibly preventable, um, but it's important that we understand exactly what it looks like, too. So let me turn it over to Dr. Fisher now, and he'll just finish it. Oh. You all are survivors. You managed to get here at 8 o'clock in the morning and find this room hidden away in the far corner of a mega church building. Some of you didn't quite get here at 8 o'clock. And now we wonder, we've, we've managed this journey to get here today. Where do we go from here? Where do we take this data? Maybe we're feeling like the little child looking to the heavens praying for direction. Do we respond to this by saying, wow, 3% of babies born in Cambodia are dying because of thiamine deficiency. I want to go give them thiamine. Or do we respond saying, what a tragedy for these mothers and families. I just want to go be there with them and share the gospel with them. Or do we say, no, I want to go do more research to figure this out. Because what Sam said raised more questions about what's really going on than what it's going to be. So we might not know just where we should go. Should we be clinicians? Should we be teachers to teach patients about thiamine and rice or teach other people how to do it? Or should we be researchers? When I was a medical student, I was sitting around on call one day with a urologist. I don't know why I get wisdom from urologists. 
neurologist and turned into a pediatrician. But I was sitting around him, and he's asked me what I was going to do with my life. And I was a little like the kid looking up saying, well, I don't know. Uh, and he said, well, you know, if you're a clinician, you take care of patients. And you can help a lot of sick people do a lot better and really add some years of quality to their lives. And I said, yeah. I was like a little puppy. Yeah, I want to do that. And then he said, but if you're a teacher, you can teach other people how to do that. And you'll end up helping a lot more people for a lot longer time. And I said, okay, I want to be a teacher. And then he said, but if you do research, you'll learn new things that are going to change the whole world for a lot of time by figuring out better ways to treat disease or eradicate disease. And then you can help huge parts of the population. I said, okay, I'll be a researcher. Some of us get to do all of it as our careers go on. The place where Sam and I are working now at the Mayo Clinic was founded by a family, um, and one of them, Will Mayo, shown here with a child. Um, Will Mayo said, heal the sick, advance the science. Indeed, we can do all of that. We can work clinically, we can teach, and we can do research to advance the science. And we all have the privilege of doing that in the broader context as part of our love for God and our love for people to see how it all pulls together. So we have lots of ways that we can get involved as we each navigate the journey of where God wants us to go through all that. So you've heard some things about thiamine deficiency. 3% of babies in a province of Cambodia dying before their first birthday because they don't have enough thiamine. You've heard a little bit about research, and you've seen for the first time ever in the medical world a presentation of echocardiograms of kids with beriberi. Never been reported before. This is the first time Sam's presented this. Never been reported by anybody else what the heart is really doing with all this. We're at the cutting edge of science, the cutting edge of maybe helping a population, and we've got 20 minutes to figure out what we're all going to do about it or what other questions and comments you all have. So what questions or comments do you all have for Sam about beriberi or Cambodia or life with his wife Jess in the back next to my wife Julie or about finding your way in life and whatever else you should do? What other questions and comments do you have? Sam, when you repeat, you can repeat her question. So oh, okay. Yeah, so the question is, what, what do we know so far about the physiologic function of thiamine? So essentially, I think the main thing we know is, uh, one, what it does on a molecular level. So it, it's, part of, it's an essential part of that Krebs cycle, so producing energy in your cells. Um, that's, that's its base function. And then how does it manifest itself? So we know in adults, they get this uh, neurological disease, so it's more of a paralysis. But then, in, and they can also get heart disease too. So adults can get either type. In infants, it more often presents as a as a heart disease, so where their hearts start failing. So that's kind of what we know about it. Yeah. Dinka. Somewhere like Cambodia, what is the current diagnostic criteria at which physicians are gonna examine, look at a baby, and say I'm gonna treat them? Say, I mean, yeah. So thanks, and I just want to give a shout out to Daniel Dudenkoff. He got me here on time this morning. He's from Mayo, and uh, we were doing quite high speeds at one point, and but it was totally worth it. So <laughs> thanks very much. Um, so the the criteria they have actually really low thresholds in Cambodia because so many infants are affected by this. So they'll just give thiamine to people left and right, and it's good because they have a lot of thiamine available. It's really easy to give. So. Sick babies that they're not quite sure about, they just get thiamine as well as antibiotics and a lot of empiric treatment. But the basic criteria are a heart rate greater than 140, a respiration rate greater than 40, 
a liver that's more than two centimeters below the, the edge of the rib, and then no fever. So that's the big clue, because you think infection up until they, they show no fever, and then you start wondering what it is that they have. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's what Debbie, the nurse practitioner who lives there, is kind of living and breathing right now, is trying to figure out how to convince people to... The trouble she's found is that a lot of people don't want to take pills, even if they're told or educated that this is something that really helps them. The moms are really opposed to taking pills. Um, and so things that we've been looking at is like trying to add that husk back into the rice, maybe adjust the way that they polish the rice if they'd be open to that. Um, the real barrier I think they're running into is just what is the society over there ready to accept. Um, what They take the husk of the rice and they feed it to pigs. And so if you want to add the husk back into their food, it's basically like telling them you need to eat pig food now. And so it's, uh, I think, a lot of education that Debbie's working on and, and really helping local health practitioners to be aware of what's causing it and help the local health practitioners be the ones who are advising them uh, about what's important, even if it means eating pig food. So. Behavioral change is very difficult. In the United States, the major killers of adults and children relate to bad diet, bad smoking, bad drinking with driving. It's hard to get people in any culture to change their behaviors, either because they think, oh, that won't happen to me, it's just for other people, or it's too big of a hassle and I don't want to do it. Uh, in Cambodia, we can come from the outside if we're not from that culture and say, oh, you should just do this. But even what the this is, is not all that clear. Because in the areas where we've looked, well, in Prevang province, essentially everybody is thiamine deficiency, or has thiamine deficiency. But not everybody is sick from it. Some of the mothers, if you ask, will say, oh, yeah, I get tingly hands. There's evidence of a neuropathy from the adult dry beriberi kind of nerve problem. Um, but most of the people are not sick. They're not feeling the problem. They're used to lots of babies dying. And so how can we really say everybody has to change what you're doing because some people are getting sick when we don't have a perfect link between what it is that everybody has and why are only some of them getting sick? So we could say eat pig food, rice with the hassan. Maybe that would change it. But lots of people are eating the white rice and not having any trouble. Other parts of Cambodia where the middle study was done by Liz, um, the thiamine deficiency rate is not as high. Craving province, it's essentially everybody. Uh, everybody that was tested is thiamine deficient. In the other areas, it's more like half of people. That's still huge, but it's only half. And the other half are still eating white rice that doesn't have the husks on it. Why aren't they? So it's tough to know what would need to be done on a population level. How acceptable would it be? If we get more medical, then we could say, oh, just give mothers thiamine. So we're currently doing some studies about pharmacokinetics of how you give thiamine to a mother and how much you need to be able to get what kind of levels and how long those levels last so we can know how to treat mothers. Is it better to treat the mother or is it better to treat the baby? We're used to a lot of things in this country where we'll treat every baby with something. Vitamin K at birth to prevent bleeding problems that are actually pretty rare. 
Um, we're used to those kinds of things. But to say, let's do that in Cambodia, where people are living on a dollar and a half a day, and now we're going to spend 50 cents for every baby to get something that we're not really sure that they need and what the right dose is. Um, so I haven't answered the question, what are we doing to combat this? But the more we look at it, the more we find problems and questions. So we need to keep involved. Um, so there are lots of people working on this from lots of parts of Cambodia, coming from the population angles, from the behavioral angles, from the pharmacokinetic mother angle, and then also from the treating the child angle. But there's room for lots more people to be involved. I'm guessing there are other questions or comments. Yes. Okay. I, yeah, I brought him with me to, as a plant. Go ahead. Um, so I have a question about like uh, your faith and how it applies in research. We often, I know a lot of us here may hear as far as clinical medicine and teaching, mm -hmm. how we hear, often hear those people talk about their faith and how they apply it to their work. How, how did you sense um, maybe your faith was applied in the research for the short time that you were there? And maybe Dr. Fisher could maybe shed a light a little bit on your yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I'm a medical student, so I haven't been in medicine very long, but the more I see of it, the more I think the main way that my faith is going to be implemented in medicine is through the relationships that I build through medicine. And so, and relationships are built everywhere, not just in medicine, not just in clinic, and not just in teaching. They can be built in research, too. And so, Jess and I had a really good relationship with the Cambodian team there, some of whom weren't believers, and Debbie had the opportunity to share with them the gospel. She, prays, she prayed with a lot of the patients that we saw that we enrolled in the study, uh, things like that. So I think your, your faith implemented in research looks the same as the way you implement your faith in the clinic and in teaching. It's just through the relationships that you're going to build through research. Um, and I think the nice thing about research is it gives you more credibility in terms of uh, the, the doctors and nurses that we were working with. We had a really close relationship. We were talking hours and hours every day, um, and so it built up a lot of credibility and the, the opportunities to share my faith. Um, yeah, Dr. Fisher. A couple answers we can give to how faith and science and practice all work together. Uh, in Cambodia, I was in the clinic one day with Debbie, and a child was brought in. Cute baby. I took a picture of the child. I like cute babies. And then Debbie pointed out what I was actually looking at. It was a child that was sick, so the mother brought the child to the clinic to get Western medical help. It was a child that came in with a little bracelet on the arm, which was a pagan animistic ritual to give good luck and good fortune by having this wristband on the child. It was a child that came in with a charcoal cross on the forehead because maybe the Christian God would help the child get better. And the mother was carrying a pair of scissors as a weapon to ward off the demons that might attack them on the way as they were going to the clinic. And I thought, wow, there's a lot going on here. And I realized that Americans tend to compartmentalize. There's my faith, and there's my practice. There's work, and there's life. And we have to somehow balance these divergent, different sorts of things. People in many other cultures don't see all these differences. They merge things together. That mother was coming for medical help from four different areas, from four different worldviews, combined all at the same time. It's much easier for non-Americans usually to integrate faith and practice because they see it as part of a whole integrated life. Jesus didn't say, love God with your body, period. Love God with your mind, period. Love God with your heart. 
It's love God with your whole self, integrated, one sentence, your whole person being thrown into it. So part of it is we need to be integrated people. We need to be dealing with all people. And what Sam said about relationship is the right answer, I think. When we had been in Congo about seven months into our time there, I had a tough 26-hour period when four of my patients died within 26 hours. Uh, that was pretty miserable. I was feeling pretty worthless. I was still struggling to speak Swahili. And I thought, wow, this is not going to be good. Um, I'm not going to do any good here. Maybe we should leave. After the last of that series of four died, it was about two in the morning. I look up at the sky, and I see all these beautiful stars. And I think, wow, I'm like nothing. And my patients are dying. What good am I? The next day, I was talking to one of our nurses, a Congolese woman. And she said, oh, yeah, people are talking about you in the market. I thought, okay, i got to run. Uh, my patients are dying. They're talking about me in the market. They're going to come and attack me. She said, no, no, no. She said, people are talking about you in the market. They know that you care, and they're coming to the Lord because of it. That was amazing to me, that I couldn't really communicate in Swahili very well. I wasn't a perfect doctor making all my patients get better. But people, even to the point of talking about it in a non-medical situation, were realizing there was some heart relational caring thing going on. And it wasn't about Phil. It was about the Lord. And people were coming to the Lord because of it. Um, so how do we fix it and how, may, how do we make it fit? I don't think it's so much by what we do, but it's about who we hang out. Oh, that was the message last night, wasn't it? It's not just by what we're doing, but if we're hanging out with Jesus, people can tell and it shines and he's, he does the work and he gives the glory. Yes. During research that has been looked at, um, mothers in their early pregnancy and looking at their thiamine level and the baby's thiamine level a few months out or during the breastfeeding phase to see if it correlates mom having severely low thiamine creates baby with low thiamine or anything like that. Sure. To my knowledge, no. Any other questions? Oh, no, I'll make more of a comment. So the question is, are there other studies looking at thiamine levels at different times of pregnancy and infant life? The challenge is that thiamine levels are very difficult to do, and they haven't been available for very long. The thiamine assays that are done in the past have been red cell functional assays about how much thiamine activity there is. The blood is very sensitive to being broken up in transport and storage to do those tests. So in rural areas, it's been hard to do those tests. They're expensive. They're not available in very many parts of the world. Now there are newer tests where you can actually look at thiamine and thiamine diphosphate. The blood can be stable to be frozen to ship, be shipped around the world, but none of those tests are available in the country of Cambodia. There's a welcome research lab in Thailand that's starting to do some of the tests, uh, but the tests just aren't available. So it's a new thing to be measuring thiamine levels other than just in those random once-in-a-while things. So to my knowledge, the studies that Sam just talked about are the best look at maternal infant thiamine levels that there are. And this is only about 100 patients in all of this combined. So there are not many data out there. Um, we've got some other stuff we're doing with mothers and lactation to look at breast milk thiamine levels um, and to try to answer some of the questions you're asking. So those questions need to be answered, but so far we don't know what happens early pregnancy versus late pregnancy versus the child after delivery and how that goes over time. We can guess based on looking at symptoms what's happening with thiamine levels, but as these studies show, the symptoms and the thiamine levels are not perfectly related, so we're not quite sure what we're seeing. So a good question, and yeah, there's still work to be done. So I know you're still processing some of your 
data from when you mm-hmm. were over there. Um, do you have any ideas about the future of this research or what you're going to hopefully look at next or the next student maybe? Yeah, so do you, do you know what we're going to do next? <laughs> that's, where, that's, that's where the mentor comes in. I just do what he tells me to do. <laughs> and he didn't wear a helmet on his motorbike. It's hard for a pediatrician to let him show that. What's next? Uh, one of the fun things about Mayo is that third-year medical students all have a quarter, three months to do research. Um, they get money to be able to go overseas if they're going to go overseas. So we have medical students that want to do this. We have two medical students in line right now wanting to go to Cambodia and do the next steps of thiamine research. I'm guessing that within the next 20 minutes, I'll hear some other people that want to get involved in doing thiamine <laughs> research. And I don't know what the next steps are exactly. So one of the side steps that Sam didn't mention that I just mentioned briefly is looking at the pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics of thiamine responsiveness in women, oral versus injectable, how long it lasts, what goes on, and then looking at breast milk to see how much gets through. There's the thought that maybe if we would give mothers a big walloping prenatal or postnatal vitamin pill at the time of delivery, maybe they would get a big enough surge of thiamine and vitamin D and vitamin A and zinc and other things that would be able to help the child for a long time. Um, so next steps we don't know, and I'm, I'm feeling a little bit bad because there are medical students wanting to go in the next few months, and I don't know what the next question <laughs> is, so I'm more waiting with bated breath for Sam's data to finish getting analyzed, mm-hmm. the blood stuff as well as the echo stuff, um, and then we'll see what the next question is. We have lots of questions. We just have to pick those focused individual questions of which question are we going to answer next. So there are lots of questions we need to answer that go in lots of different directions, environmental influences, dietary influences, population issues, as well as the individual normal life natural course of thiamine and then the treatment sorts of things. So there are lots of things to be done, and we're just working on those next steps now. And we invite ideas and participation from others. This whole project came because of a Christian Medical and Dental Association meeting and people networking and talking over about seven years, saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, you do that, you do that. And after seven years, then things started happening largely because of an adult gastroenterologist that decided to care. All right, we have one more minute for any final questions or words of wisdom. Yes, we get some. I didn't warn you. Jess, do you have words of wisdom for everybody? Yeah, get involved in overseas medical missions. That was good. If you didn't hear, she said, get involved in overseas medical missions. It's really good. Have a great day. (laughs) Oh, and for those that want Sam's data and references and pictures and all that, should be available on the GMHC website so you can see the beating heart and all that stuff. Otherwise, we could email you or send you copies of things if you want as well. Email addresses are fisher.phil at mayo.edu, edu, and porter.sam or samuel? Porter.samuel at mayo.edu.